We're going to begin this morning a study through the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bible, uh, since we're starting in 1 Timothy, I'm going to go ahead and, spoiler alert, we're going to begin in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It seemed like a good place to start as we're studying through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, we're going to be looking at this book about how our correct doctrine interacts with our faith, our daily living, what we believe about the Word of God and how we read and study the Word of God affects what we do, particularly in a church setting, but in our everyday lives. I got convicted fairly recently, this isn't fair, a long time ago, but really recently strongly convicted that we need to do more preaching through the Bible. Last week we talked about preaching the whole counsel of God how it's really easy to handpick our favorite passages and piece together messages and never get the full picture. So we're going to make an asserted effort not to only always preach through books of the Bible, but to do that a lot more often. I would love to say that my goal as your pastor here would be to preach through every verse of the Bible as your pastor. That would take a long, long time. A uh, famous pastor in, in history's sake, a man named John Calvin, made it his point only to preach verse by verse through Scripture. He stuck so strongly to it that there's a story of uh, him preaching through the book of, I believe it was 1 Corinthians, and midway through his, his preaching through 1 Corinthians, or his persecution of his church in town, they shut him and ran him out of town, and he was in exile for 13 years. And finally, after 13 years, was able to come back to his town, resume his position as pastor of the church, and immediately picked up where he left off in the book of 1 Corinthians and continued to preach through the Bible. And what faith, what, what a, a dedication to preach through every verse of Scripture. Now, we could try to attempt this. I started looking at some numbers. Here's some Bible trivia for you. If you like just random Bible facts, you can jot some of these down. Impress people that you're really smart with the Bible when really you just took good notes. There are 66 books in the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, 66 books. If I wanted to preach through one book every Sunday, you could do the math really quick. It would take me a little over a year, right? 52 weeks in a year. It would take me a little over a year if I could do one book every Sunday. But there's no way you could get in depth one book every Sunday. So there are, here's, take your notes, 1,189 chapters in the Bible. 1,189 chapters. So maybe it would be my goal to preach through one chapter every single week. How long would it take me to preach through the entire Bible if I just took one chapter each Sunday? Well, I'm so glad you asked. It would take 22 years and 10 months to preach through the entire Bible that way. So I've got a pastor here at least another 22 years and 10 months to do this, okay? But here's, here's the problem. You can't get through a whole chapter in a Sunday a lot of times. Do you know there's a, there's a chapter in Psalms that has 164 verses 162, 164, 160-something verses. There's no way you're going to read every one of those verses and preach through Psalm 119 with 160-some-odd verses all in one Sunday. There are other chapters that have 60 or 70 verses, or, or even in our own study this morning, we're not going through all of chapter 1. So what if we just took chunks of verses? There are, get your pencil ready, more Bible trivia, 31,102 verses in the Bible. 
31,102 verses in the Bible. I counted every one of them myself this week. No, that's a lie. I'm sorry. 31,102 verses. This morning, we're just taking 11 verses. Sometimes we can do more, sometimes we can do less, but let's assume on average we do 11 verses a Sunday. How long would it take to preach through the entire Bible? Well, I'm so glad you asked. It would take 54 years and four months to get through every single verse of the Bible. So I need to pastor here at least another 55 years. Good news is I'm like 16 years old, and so I've got a lot of time to get this done. My goal is not to preach through every single verse in my time as pastor here, but to preach through as much of it as possible. Lord willing, we'll get through another 54 years and four months. I don't anticipate that happening, but Lord willing, we're able to preach through a lot of the Bible that we've not yet got to delve into. And this morning, we are going to start our study in 1 Timothy. We are looking at the first 11 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, in a message we're entitling The Struggle, because it introduces to us the problem in the church in Ephesus where Timothy was working. It tells us what they were fighting and struggling with, what, what the difficulty was that Paul felt the need to address to his, his son in the faith, Timothy. And so we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 together, and it kind of introduces a theme for the rest of the book. 1 Timothy was written by a man named Paul. He was probably, most likely, sitting in a jail cell in Rome. Now, most people believe it's not the incident in Acts, but it's after Acts. If you read the 28 chapters in Acts, what you find is it ends with a cliffhanger. Paul doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He's been arrested. He's been loosened a little bit. He was in a jail, but then now he's on house arrest, basically. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or whether he's going to be put to death. All signs point to, and we don't know this except through historical things, is that he was released and kept preaching the gospel. And most likely, he was arrested a second time in Rome because of his faithfulness to preach the gospel. And I believe that he's writing from that second time in jail, writing to Timothy in, Ephesians, in Ephesus. Timothy, who the letter is written to, is, is ministering at this church. He's kind of one of their lead pastors at the church. A very large congregation for first century standards had multiple gatherings in house churches and people who were gathering together. But as we discussed last week, there was some tension in Ephesus. There was some persecution from outside the church, uh, right? The, the people who were making the idols were mad that Christianity was growing. But we learned that there's some tension inside the church as well. And 1 Timothy is written specifically to address the struggle from within the church. What's going on in the church that Paul feels the need to address? This is a very practical letter. Most people think of 1 Timothy as, uh, they will call it a pastoral epistle. It's meant for pastors to read and learn how to organize their church and, and how, to, how to have this, this formal structure within the church. I don't think that's the theme of 1 Timothy, but there's a lot of that in there. But we're going to look at what the theme is this morning, but what we have to understand is as we're introduced to this theme, it comes out practically in ways where Paul says it'd be a good idea if if the church was structured in this manner. It would be helpful to promote what this theme is. And so there's a lot of practical information for the church and for individuals within the church. So we're going to read verses 1 through 11 this morning together. And Paul begins his letter in a very unique way. We'll take this just a couple of verses at a time. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. Paul 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, remember, a letter that Paul is writing to Timothy. Very different beginning from how we would start our letters. Dear John, right? Paul has this elaborate introduction that was pretty standard for letter writing in the first century. And I think I'm going to start writing my emails in this way. Trey, a pastor of Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. And then I'm going to tell who it's to. To, I don't know, uh, Tracy. My brother in the faith, grace and mercy and peace to you. I think that's a good way to start emails from now. Can we start a new trend of writing letters where we introduce who it's to and who it's from all at the beginning? Paul wants to assert something at the outset of his letter. And so in his greeting, he tells us who's writing it. It's Paul. And then he gives us a very strong characterization of himself. He says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. You know, if you study other letters that Paul has written, he starts similarly. But he always starts off with, I'm an apostle by the will of God. God has, has willed me to be an apostle, has called me. And here... And in one other place only, he uses this phrase, command. And it's a stronger statement. Timothy needs to read, and the church as a whole needs to read, that Paul is writing not on his own authority, but because God has commanded it. Even if Paul wanted to run away, he couldn't. God has willed it, and God has commanded. Paul is writing out of faithfulness and obedience. And then he gives us this glimpse of the theme he flips things around again and does things strange. He says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior. Now, when I typically think of a Savior, I normally think of God, but I don't think of God the Father. I think of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus. He is my Savior. Jesus is my Savior. But we see Paul tying in a very important statement here that it is God, the Father, who has orchestrated our salvation. He and Jesus are one. There's a, a Trinity picture here. And he has been commanded by God who has orchestrated salvation from the beginning and of Jesus Christ who is our hope. Here is the theme of the letter. The theme of the letter is that Jesus Christ brings and gives hope. We have hope because of what Christ has done. God has saved us through his Son. And because of this salvation, whatever struggles we have, there is a future hope. So in every aspect of this letter, we need to come back to verse 1 and remind ourselves that all of this is written so that you and I know how to live in light of the future hope that God gives us. There's going to be some really difficult passages in 1 Timothy when we get there, you're going to go, oh, that's what Trey meant. <laughs> Some really, really, I'll say fun passages, and I say that somewhat sarcastically, because some of you all are going to want to throw things at me just when I read Scripture. Go ahead and run, read through 1 Timothy this week if you want to. You're going to highlight some things and go, oh, there's a sermon that's going to be exciting. There's some really tough things in 1 Timothy to read through and to talk about. And as we do, we need to be reminded of this. Those tough practical applications are there for this purpose so that you know the will of God, live in the will of God, so that you can experience a future hope. He's writing to Timothy, his child in the faith, 
grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. We see his greetings, and then the next couple of verses, we, we see him introduce what is being taught in the book of, or, or the, the church of Ephesus. Look with me in verses 3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So we get an introduction as to some of this false teaching. Really, these 11 verses are going to give us five clues. Truth is, we have no idea what the false teaching was. We don't know. He never comes out and says, this is what it is. But he gives us these hints, these clues as to what type of teaching it was. And it's important to make sure they don't infiltrate our own lives. So the first clue, as we're trying to put together what this false teaching is, this first clue in verse 3 is that it was a different doctrine. It, it wasn't the gospel that they had heard before. It was something new and different. Paul is going to tell us in other letters that if there's any gospel that is preached different than the true gospel from the apostles that we have recorded in the word of God that it is a false gospel and it is a lie. It leads to condemnation, not salvation. So this is not a small deal that Paul is talking about here. It's a different doctrine and that means it needs to be rejected outright. A lot of times we hear things that are just a little off and a little different and we think we can deal with that and we can put up with that for a moment. It's okay if we just, we can agree to disagree on this this other doctrine or this other teaching. Certainly in some places where interpretation is hard, we, we're forced to do that. We don't have a clear answer. But a different doctrine means God has clearly spoken it and we're rejecting it in some capacity. This is a big deal in the church of Ephesus. Not to be taken lightly. It's different altogether. The second clue we have is that this doctrine is promoting speculation. But literally what Paul is saying is it's dividing the church. People are starting to assume things they shouldn't assume. There's division because of this false doctrine, this false teaching. If you're taking notes, there's really three observations we, we want to make as we go through these verses. And the first one is this. False teaching causes division. A sure sign that a false doctrine is being preached is that people are divided over it. Because hopefully and prayerfully, in a faithful church, there are enough people clinging to the true gospel, when a false gospel is introduced, there's a fight. I tell you right now, if we start teaching a false doctrine here at First Baptist Church, I'm going to be on the front lines and fighting that. And I hope there'll be others with me as well. False doctrine introduces division. If you start to see division in teaching, division in a church, you start to see people arguing over, over what we would think are meaningless, or, or he talks about them being uh, uh, speculative, when you start seeing people fight and argue, you start to realize there's some false teaching going on that we need to correct somewhere. Because in the gospel, there should be unity. So there's real danger in this false teaching. There, there's this speculation, there's this division that's aroused in the church. And so then in verse 5, Paul is going to counter this false teaching with, with the goal of sound teaching. Verse 5, he says this, The aim of our charge is not division, it's not speculation. The aim of our charge is love. And that love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
This is what biblical teaching ought to have as its goal, is love, is encouragement, and is building people up. The charge and the goal is love. Where does that love come from? That love is issued from three things, he says, a pure heart. In other words, someone who is proclaiming love looks at their own life first and says, I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing before God. I've got a, a pure heart. My goal and my motivation is to please God. The second is like it. He says it's a good conscience. So you look back in your life and you go, you know what? Not only am I striving forward to have a pure heart and do God's will, but I can look back and I've made amends and I've done my part for where I've been guilty. And then a sincere faith. This is a a sincere, genuine desire to grow in a relationship with God. This is what sound doctrine does. It examines our own hearts. It examines our own lives and says, God, I'm doing what you've called me to do. I know that what you want me to do is exactly what I'm doing. And when I fall, God, I'm going to beg your forgiveness. And I'm going to have a clear conscience because I'm being faithful. This is really our our second observation. If false teaching causes division, we recognize that sound teaching originates in love. It's a desire to see people unified and grown together. It's a desire to love and bring people together. Now, Now notice, it doesn't say that sound teaching necessarily always makes everybody happy. Paul is going to go on to write some very difficult words in this letter. Difficult to write, I'm sure. Difficult for us to read. Difficult to um, uh, interpret and apply. It doesn't mean that sound doctrine is easy and everyone is happy. What it means is the motivation of the one giving the truth is done for the goal of standing on God's word and bringing love and reconciliation. Sound teaching originates in, in love. Verses 6 and 7 tells us then what the aim of these false teachers are. The aims are this, in verse 6, certain persons, by swerving away from these, that is, these principles of love, of a a sincere, uh, a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a clear conscience, they've wandered away, and they've wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, but without understanding either what they're uh, saying or the things about which They make confident assertions. Two more quick clues as to what this false teaching is. And we don't have the substance, but we do have this. One, in verse 6, it involves vain discussions. It seems as if what the people are talking about are really, they're rabbit trails that don't matter. They're vain discussions. They're, They're delving into what we find as these genealogies. We'll talk about why they're looking at genealogies here in a couple of verses, but, but they're looking at these, these things that in the long run just don't matter. Can we put this in a Baptist perspective for just a minute? Maybe get a little personal here at First Baptist for just a second. These vain discussions may involve something like arguing over the color of carpet. Vain discussions. These things might involve trying to discuss and decide which side of the stage the drums go on or whether they belong on or off or whether we have a piano over here, over there, whether the music is up or down. It may involve worship preference. These vain discussions may involve whether or not we meet at certain times and not at other times. And it's not gospel and it doesn't matter. This is a false teaching going on in in Ephesus. It's vain. It's it's meaningless when it comes to the gospel. 
The focus is on the wrong thing. And then a fourth clue we have is that it's coming from verse 7. Boy, Paul gets bold right away. It comes from ignorant teachers. Right? People who desire to speak with authority on the law, but have no clue what they're talking about. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know anything about the things they're making assertions on. They're trying to talk about all these things that don't matter and give them authority that do not belong. There's problems in the church when people start asserting opinions that don't matter and speaking on things that, quite honestly, they don't even understand. It seems like the false teaching was really less of well-thought-out blasphemy it wasn't as if they developed this whole other gospel doctrine. It seemed as if it was more of a pride issue from those leaders who focused on their own opinions over the gospel. This was the false doctrine. It, it, it wasn't this heresy. It seems like it was just men and women in the church who were making assertions that didn't matter and distracting from the truth. The aim of these teachers is to drag people with them onto their side. Let's get our, our way. Let, let's talk about the things we want to talk about and, and let's ignore the things that have priority. Paul then kind of seems like he makes a left-hand turn, but, but he doesn't. And we'll, we'll look at this fifth clue in verses 8 through 10 when he starts talking about the purpose of Old Testament law. And you think, Paul, where did you get this from? I think it's another clue. Look with me in verses 8 through 10. Out of this false doctrine, Paul says, Now we know that the law is good. Seems strange to us. And if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to false or contrary to sound doctrine. Paul seems to take a left-hand turn after he's saying, We're talking about things that are vain. He says, Let me tell you about the law. It's good. We know the law is good. What does Paul mean when he says the law? He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, and particularly when he talks about the law, he's talking about those first five books of the Old Testament. We would call it the Pentateuch. It's just a fancy word, meaning the first five books of the Bible. And it's what the Hebrew people referred to as the law. In that contained a very specific set of laws. Maybe you've heard of them. There were ten rules that God laid out called the Ten Commandments. That was the ultimate law that God had given man. So there's all this false teaching and false doctrine and, and this understanding that people are talking about things that aren't important. And then Paul swerves and he goes, and we know the law is good, as if we're supposed to assume the problem. Now, Timothy would have known the problem already, so this would have made perfect sense. But we have to put some pieces together. It seems as if this false doctrine, this vain discussion centered around a misuse of the law. So our fifth clue is that there's a, a, a Jewish side to this false doctrine because it focused on the law and the Pentateuch and these first five books and particularly the Old Testament, particularly the Ten Commandments. Paul gives us a list of, of who the law is written for. It's for those who are lawless, rebels, sinners. And he starts listing some examples of sins. Why did Paul pick these sins? Well, if you start going through them, there actually are, are breaking of different of the Ten Commandments. He 
talks about the sexually immoral. It's a breaking of the commandment not to commit adultery. He talks about the liars, a breaking of the commandment not to bear false witness. You see in there the enslavers. You think, where's the enslavers come in? This word literally means uh, kidnappers, people who, who steal people and sell them into slavery. It's the worst kind of don't steal breaking of the commandment, right? You steal a person. All of these are breaking of one of the Ten Commandments in the worst possible way. Those who strike and hit their mothers and fathers. They're not just disrespectful. They're physically abusive to their parents. Probably their, their aged parents who now they're strong enough to overcome, right? There's this, there's this horrible side of these sins. And Paul adds at the end, and actually these are the worst ones, but anything that is contrary to sound doctrine, that's who the law is for. The law is for you if you are a sinner. Let's do a quick survey in here. If the law is for sinful people, all right, we, we pay attention, I want participation here. If the law is for sinful people, raise your hand if the law is for you. Now, I don't know anybody in here, maybe there are, who are murderers. If you are, please don't confess that to me. Confess that next door, okay? Not, not to me. Confess that somewhere else. It, I don't know who in here is striking their parents. I hope none of you are. As a matter of fact, if you're young enough, learn from this. that That's the worst kind of breaking of that commandment. You need to be respectful. I hope none of you are the worst of the worst in this list. But can I tell you, all of us fall into the contrary to sound doctrine. We have a habit, and Paul uses this here, of using the extreme to get his point across. And Paul pulls out all the extreme measures to remind us that we all are in that same category of the extreme. There's danger in putting our faith and trust in a law because all the law does is point out sin. Well, the law is good if it's used properly. That's what Paul says. But here's the purpose of the law. It's not to bring salvation and to make us right. The goodness of the law is that it points out your sin and my sin so that we know we're in trouble. What the law is, it's a diagnosis. The law is not the cure. It's like when you go to a doctor and he says, these are all the problems you have before he gives you the plan. That's the law. It points us to our need for correction. All throughout the Bible, and particularly it sounds like in Ephesus, as Paul is writing to 1 Timothy, people were looking to the law to save them. As if somehow they could put an overemphasis on the the being good and doing good things and carrying out a good life, doing good works. And Paul says the law is great, but not the way you're using it. You're abusing it. It's horrible. You cannot be a good enough person. You fall into the contrary to sound doctrine. You're a lawbreaker. The law is good because it reveals the sins of man and it reveals our sins, but it cannot save us. And so he finishes verse 11. He contrasts it with the gospel in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Paul says the law is good because it points out all of our sin and it works together in accordance with, it partners with the gospel. So that when our sin is clear, when we realize we need a Savior, the glory of the gospel shines through. This gospel is in contrast to the works of the law. The works of the law says, do all of these things. 
And there are people in the church in Ephesus, and there are people today who stand up and tell you authoritatively in vanity that if you practice all of those good things, you can have a good relationship with God. Paul says it's garbage and it's vain. Stop arguing about those things. The law only points you to sin. But in contrast, there's the gospel. And it doesn't matter if you've broken all of the list of laws. It doesn't matter if every single one of those Ten Commandments has been broken. The glory of the gospel overcomes. Paul says, I've been entrusted with this gospel. It must be shared and it must be proclaimed. There are men and women in the church who are standing up and proclaiming another gospel, another doctrine, a false one that leads you to a road of vanity. But Paul says, in contrast to that, by the command of God, let me share you that Jesus Christ died to pay for your sins and overcome all the breaking that is contrary to sound doctrine. What Paul is trying to tell us is that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if we're grounded in what we believe, it changes our life so that we're no longer trying to strive to do all of the good works. The good works happen because we're striving to know Christ. There's this idea of faithfulness to the gospel, and what we believe changes how we approach the law. Apart from Christ, the law is our enemy. It tells us everything we do wrong, and I hate being told what I do wrong. We all run from people telling us what we do wrong. The law is our enemy, but but when we know the gospel, the law becomes good. You see, what we we learn, and this is really a, a reoccurring theme throughout the book as well, what we believe dictates what we do or how we live. If you have your faith and trust in good works and trying to be a good person, you're going to find yourself failing over and over and over again. If you believe the law and following rules can save you, you're going to hate the law and hate the rules. But if you believe in the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came to earth to die for your sin and for my sin, that if we confess with our mouth that He is Lord and in control of all things and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead to save us from our sins, we will be saved. It will change how you view everything you do, every work you commit. Now the law is good. It reminds you of the grace that God has saved you. This morning as we look at the struggle in the church in Ephesus, we have to ask ourselves a question. Where are we putting our faith and trust in? Are we following what the world tells you? That is, be good and do good and, and, and live a good life and follow the law and follow the rules? Is our faith and trust in works and words of men? Is our faith and trust in the glorious gospel that says Jesus Christ overcame your failings? There's going to be some practical applications to that through the book of 1 Timothy, but this morning, can we just stop and pause and say, without trying to look forward at how it will change your life, can we just acknowledge that Jesus wants to change your life? That the sin and the struggle that you have doesn't have to continue? That God's desire is to save you and forgive you? This morning, your struggle may be different from the verses we read, but if your struggle is still rebelling against God and trying to, to just be the best person you can be, Can you surrender that to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ?
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to save us. Father, we thank you that even in the midst of false teaching, you can bring out biblical sound truth. And Lord, we confess to you that we want to strive so much to just be good and do good things. Lord, the command that you've called your word, your apostle Paul, and Lord, by extension, me this morning, the command to preach and proclaim is works and laws cannot save us. But your son, Jesus Christ, provides all the saving power we could ever need. Father, forgive us where we fail you. Lord, help us to strive to be faithful and submit ourselves to the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen.